This is Father Michael Dank. Welcome again to Praying with Priests. Today I'm here with Father Thomas Rizika, a priest of the Congregation of St. Basil, and he was ordained in 1986. A native of Rochester, New York, he is a scripture scholar and the founder and CEO of Canada's Salt and Light Catholic Media Foundation and Television Network. He also works with the Holy See Press Office at the Vatican. Father Tom, it's great to interview you today. Thank you, Father Mike. And uh, today we're going to be talking about prayer, and specifically, I think, I think it's important people look to priests as being teachers and leaders in prayer. And so what this series is focused on is really going to the priests and finding out what their prayer life is really like, how they've learned to pray, and how their prayer has grown, grown over the years. So the first thing I want to ask you, Father Tom, is what is your first memory of prayer as a child? We had the privilege of growing up with our grandparents and great-grandparents in the house. And coming from an Italian family, there was some very beautiful, simple piety. And one of my first memories of prayer is my great-grandmother, Isabel, sitting on the steps in the living room with the rosary beads running through her fingers. And she was not an educated woman at all, but a very holy, pious woman. And watching her with the rosary, I remember teasing her and saying, Nonna, Grandma, why, why aren't you praying faster? You're saying the same thing all the time. And she said, no, no, slow, peaceful, quiet, Maria. And I was kind of intrigued by watching that whole scene unfolding. The next moments would have been uh, going to church. We were blessed when I was growing up in Rochester, New York, to have very good priests in church. I remember sitting in the pew, kind of wide-eyed, watching these men lead a community in prayer. Before you go to that, did you ever pray with your nana? Did she? Did you ever join her in rosary? Oh, I did all the time. Yeah. What was that? Li- what was that like? Well, first of all, I wanted to get through it much faster than she did, so I remember her kind of slowing us down. That. Prayer was not a matter of speed, but it had to be quiet. And it always struck me how peaceful people were when they prayed. Whereas, you know, as kids we were more agitated or whatever. But that's one one impression very much, watching the grandparents pray, watching the calmness come over them, and wondering what's going on there, what what's happening, something's happening inside of them. So you saw it in them, but did you ever experience that peace when you were a child or was it all just agitation in school we had very we had prayer every day I was in Catholic grade school and prayer was a big part of the day it began with prayer we had the Angelus prayer Um, there was a certain discipline and rhythm we had I had sisters it was the norm in those days to have religious women teaching us and I can still remember them and, and their whole prayer you know people who pray are the best teachers for those of us who don't pray I mean they, they, it's kind of an enticing, inviting thing to watch people who pray give us a holy jealousy to want to pray like them. And so we were blessed. I memorized prayer. Memorization was very important. Some of those prayers that I remember as a kid preparing my first communion, every time I receive communion now, the first thing that comes to me is to go back to my place or go back to the presider's chair as a priest and to say, look down upon me, good and gentle Jesus, while before your face I humbly kneel. The prayer before the crucifix. It kind of comes automatically with receiving communion. Uh, the night prayer. Uh, we learn certain prayers to say at the end of the day. Uh, the angel of God prayer. I said it all the time. Angel of God, my guardian dear, to whom God's love and trust me here. Those I owe to the teachers that I had in school. And so they taught us, 
but they also modeled it for us. It's one thing to teach, it's another thing to model it. And so I had very good models. So when you were a child, were there ever times that you prayed alone at home, or was it only in school? I would pray in my room. Like I learned how to that, pray where... every night. At the end of the day, I would kneel down next to my bed. God, I'm sorry for all the things I didn't do or did wrong or whatever. And Lord, please be with me. I, al I always talk to Jesus as a friend. People have asked even me. Even as a child? Even as a child. I was never afraid. I pictured him. I think we had some good holy pictures in the house, too. Now, they were long, flowing robes and, you know, the blonde California Jesus pictures, because I later found out he didn't look like that. But those pictures are also very important. I'm the type, too, a very visual kind of sensate person, that as I grew up, I found holy pictures, images, statues, and now the past 25, 30 years, icons to be very, very helpful for prayer. I can't pray without images. Images for me are very important. So let's talk about that transition from a child. So as a child, it sounds like you prayed, you had memorized prayers that you yes. prayed, and those are very special to you. You prayed with your, your, your nana. Yes. And uh, you experienced from her how to slow down in prayer. Right. As opposed to it being a task to get through. Yes. Something to be enjoyed and to be at peace with. Yeah. As you grew from a child, say, into your adolescent years, your, you know, your, your, your adolescent or high school years, how did, did your prayer change or was it the same? The big turning point I remember very distinctly was in grade seven or seventh grade, as you say in America. In Canada, we say grade seven. Um, there was a sister teaching in our school. She taught humanities and music. And she was very much into the charismatic renewal. And I didn't know what the charismatic renewal was, but somehow she took me under her wing. What is the charismatic renewal for people the, that don't know? The charismatic renewal is a movement very much inspired by the Second Vatican Council and by the freedom of the Holy Spirit to pray in us, that we're not stuck just with form and, and we're not stuck with repetition, but to pray with the scriptures and to pray spontaneously and allow the Spirit to pray in us. And sometimes that's accompanied by manifestations such as speaking in tongues and all kinds of other things. But what Sister Rose Gonzaga did for me was to help me pray with the scriptures. As I look back now, you know, I clearly see the hand of God. But I remember in grade seven. So seventh grade, she was a nun. She was a, she was an older nun. We became and she very was a close. She, she taught, was a teacher. She taught, she taught humanities and music. How did it, she taught humanities and music? So how did it come about that she taught you how to pray? She took me under her wing. There were two or three of us, and she was going through the charismatic renewal herself. These are the years after the Second Vatican Council. I watched a lot of sisters really come alive with their prayer, but this one in particular. She, she just took us and she spent a lot of time with us after school. We go down to her room and we pray, close our eyes, come Holy Spirit, fill the house of your faithful. And I remember, I kind of laugh at it now, at the end of my grade seven year with her, she gave me a big gift. It was a big book, it was like a brick. And I opened it up and it was called the Jerome Biblical Commentary. Now who in their right mind would give a kid in grade seven the Jerome Biblical Commentary, the JBC? And she gave this to me. She says, this will come in handy one day. I think from that day in grade seven until I was in university, until I was in the seminary, uh, I never opened the book. Then when I arrived and everybody in the seminary in theology, had one. everybody had to have one. I said, I already have one. They looked at me and said, where'd you get that? I said, when I was in grade seven. And, you know, by that time, sister was very old. I remember when I celebrated her funeral mass, praying by her casket and saying, you saw something in me that I didn't see. I owe much of my 
spontaneous prayer and praying with the scriptures to Sister Rose Gonzaga and to her sister, Sister Marie Paulus. They were blood sisters in the same congregation. And they, they had been transformed by charismatic renewal, and they, they spread that on to others. Well, let's talk a little bit about because I think when people pray, especially they have a, a difficulty with the Holy Spirit. So tell me about your experience of, through that charismatic type of prayer, experiencing praying with I, the Spirit. I've heard a lot of people who don't know the Holy Spirit, whatever. I, I owe it to those two nuns who taught me. They introduced me to the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit was never this foreign entity or, you know, uh, this mysterious presence. The Holy Spirit, I always understood in very simple language, the Holy Spirit was the, the, the what do you call it, like the, the gas in the engine to keep the engine going. We need the Holy Spirit to open us up to pray to Jesus and to pray to God the Father. It was the energy. It was the vision. It was that force that was at work. And Sister taught me also how to pray to the Holy Spirit. So there's certain things you turn to the Holy Spirit. And I really owe it now when I look back how fortunate I was because she said whenever you're in a difficult situation and you need words, you need to say something, pray to the Holy Spirit. This is long before I studied theology and sacred scripture. And now, you know, being a professor of scripture and teaching the Acts of the Apostles and teaching the text of the Holy Spirit, uh, I look back and say, wow, you know, there was a lot of preparation that was underway there, and I didn't even realize it. When you prayed with Sister and the other classmates, it sounds like, yeah. did you have any felt experience of God during that time? No, I was always concerned because all kinds of people would say they're, they're overcome with emotion or whatever. I'll tell you a really funny thing about prayer. There was this retreat movement when I was in high school. It, it, it was called Teen Seminar. I'm sure it's gone through various iterations now. It's called all kinds of other things. And this was like the prized, coveted retreat experience for high school kids, especially because you'd get permission to get off school for three days to go on this retreat. There was a whole triage system. They would pull your name. You go to this retreat house on Canandaigua Lake, and it was highly emotional and highly intense. Um, certainly one thing I learned through all of that is never to do stuff like that. It was like taking people to the top of the mountain and when the retreat's over, adios, you know, arrivederci, go down the mountain. Nobody knew what you were talking about. But anyway, we were on this retreat. I would have been in probably grade 11, 11th grade, a junior in, college, a junior in high school. And everybody on the retreat, the one thing that struck me, there were Kleenex boxes all over the place. Mm -hmm. And the organizers of the retreat put a real high premium on crying. And I remember sitting there watching all this and saying, I can't feel anything. Mm. I don't feel anything. And, and I said, Lord, please help me to cry so I'm not like an oddball here. Mm. And, you know, there were movements in the church and retreat movements such as that, which though they may seem to be very significant, when we put too much of a premium on being carried by this wave of feeling and emotion, it could be very dangerous. Well, and I think you bring up, you know, an important point, I think, for prayer is that everyone prays differently. Right. We all pray uniquely. And so for some people, those emotional experiences, obviously some people have a retreat and it changes their entire life. Oh, yeah, yeah. And you didn't experience anything. As a kid. But later on, the experiences I had, because I've made many retreats, I love making retreats, for example, in monasteries or abbeys. And having studied in Europe and in the Holy Land and other places, they were quite accessible. Well, let's talk a, a little bit about that. So we have your experience as a child and your experience in seventh grade with right. sister. Is there any more progression? Oh, yeah. So when I got to university, 
and was discerning or deciding where do I go. I know I wanted to be a priest. So you went to, it sounds like you went to Catholic grade school. Catholic grade school, a Catholic high school run by my community. Okay. And a Catholic college where my community was present. But interestingly enough, in college, I took no religion courses. Uh-huh. I took philosophy, but I specialized in Italian and French literature. And, um, but in college, I noticed as I was, you, you know, the word discerning, I think is a pretty large word. But I was trying to choose. Do I become a Jesuit or a Franciscan or a Brazilian father, which I end up choosing, or a Dazen priest? Uh, I, I found myself praying, Lord, show me the way. Show me the way. I got to love the Psalms. And so there was a progression there. And then I went to novitiate. And the novitiate year, that intense spirituality year, my novitiate was in Detroit, in the inner city. We had a novice master, a superior, formator, who was a wonderful holy man of prayer. And one of the things he taught me was the importance of praying the daily homilies, praying the scripture readings. So there was a lot of preparation with the scripture readings, the Sunday readings, the daily readings. And then to my surprise in the novitiate year... Well, before you go on, what does that mean to pray with the, the daily homilies, just, the daily readings? What does that mean to pray means with means when I go to Mass, I just, just zip through the readings. Uh, first of all, I read those readings very slowly you begin to do some critical approach to the readings. What's behind this? What does the prophet Isaiah mean by this? Why is there a lot of war language in the Old Testament? What do the parables mean? And much of it was what we would consider to be, to be form of guided imagery or placing ourselves in the story. In the novitiate, we had a strong component every day of personal prayer and meditation together in the chapel. Mm-hmm. So an hour before we did anything in the morning, an hour before morning prayer, an hour in silence in the chapel. So you would all, as a community, spend time... Right. We were ten novices at the time and two priests in the community. And that was a lesson in itself, to do that. Well, what do you mean by that? What was that like? I had never done... Being being quiet together can be a form of prayer. Mm-hmm. Usually being quiet, you go off on your own and sit in a quiet room. But this became part of our identity, who we are, to be men of contemplation. Following that, I went to theology and did my theology, my master's degree in Toronto, at the University of Toronto. And because we were living in a big community, we had with the divine office. We already started the divine office in the novitiate, but you got into the rhythm so what of is, prayer. What, what's the divine office for people that might not know? It's the book of readings, the breviary, that contains psalms. It's based on the monastic prayer, where they pray all hours of the day and night. But this is more modified, where you have morning prayer, mid-morning prayer, evening prayer, and night prayer. And each of those is accompanied by psalms, morning, evening, and night prayer with specific biblical canticles, which we memorize by heart. Mm-hmm. And there was a deepening of the scriptural tradition in prayer. I got to love the psalms. And of course, when you're in theology, you're taking scripture courses. And that was truly, it was remarkable to take these scripture texts and see what's underneath them in a very scientific way. But another big shift happened uh, I was ordained, of course. I went to a parish for two years, a deacon and priest, and there it was preaching. But preaching isn't simply writing out a talk. I tried to apply everything that I had beforehand to prepare those. I remember in the beginning I'd write everything out, be so concerned, and you know, it was meticulous stuff. And little by little I realized it's still important to prepare. One rule of thumb I adopted is whether I celebrate or don't celebrate Mass, preside or not preside, I prepare the scripture readings every day as if I'm going to preach. Mm-hmm. So it's been a discipline. Another thing I did, 
So talk a little bit about discipline, because I think discipline's important for a prayer life. You know, nowadays, discipline, when I go work out at the athletic club, the health club, and you see all of these people on these machines in such intensity, it's extraordinary. And for many of them, it's a form of meditation and devotion. Mm. If they don't show up, they know something is missing. Mm -hmm. I often said, why can't we apply these same principles to prayer? We pray to keep in good spiritual shape. Like I walk on the moving sidewalk there, or the, the machines at the athletic club, to keep in good physical shape. We need the spiritual shape and the physical shape that go hand in hand. I don't believe that people are undisciplined today. In fact, they're probably more disciplined than ever before. Discipline for diets, discipline for exercise, discipline for all kinds of things. Why can't we translate that form of discipline to the life of prayer? So that every morning when I get up, I say certain prayers. I say different prayers throughout the day. I say prayers at the conclusion of the day. Now you asked me what have been some big teaching moments in prayer. <clears throat> when I was doing my graduate studies in sacred scripture, I didn't take the normal route that most people take. Like priests would get a master's degree or master divinity degree. I was asked to go on for further study. So I was sent to the Pontifical Biblical Institute in Rome and then for three and a half years, and to Jerusalem for four and a half years. And a big kind of explosion in prayer happened for me. When you study scripture at the graduate level, you have to study the original languages. And I remember distinctly the day in December of 1988. We had taken Hebrew now already for two or three years. And I was reading the Psalms, and all of a sudden, I was no longer reading him as a grammar student or a language student. I started praying the Psalms in the language that Jesus prayed them. And I had this really stupid tradition. People, my friends laughed at me. I cut up the book of Psalms and all these cards, put them in plastic holders, and I would how I didn't get killed walking to school in Rome at times or in Jerusalem is beyond me because I'd be reciting the Psalms on the way to school in, in Hebrew. Hebrew. And it, it, was, it seemed like an insignificant thing, but I got to memorize the Psalms in Hebrew. I remember the day that I memorized Psalm 23, I got it down. It was like a really feeling of exhilaration, saying, I'm praying as Jesus prayed. I'm now, praying Psalm 23 is a, uh, you know, the, the Good Shepherd Psalm. The Lord is my shepherd. That is a very, um, usually powerful prayer for people. Tell me about that, the first time you prayed that in Hebrew. I remember the first time I, I prayed Psalm 23, not as a language student, but as a prayer uh, it was a very strange, warm sensation inside of me. And I got into the habit now all of these years, 25, 30 years, to pray different psalms in Hebrew. But Psalm, psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, is one of my favorite psalms. So that first, do you remember the first moment that you did that and had that feeling? Where were you? Sort of like your first love. I was walking on the Via Conciliazione, walking home from the Biblicum. And it struck me, Via Conciliazione is in Rome, right near the Vatican. I'm reciting the prayers. I was always talking to myself, walking to school, reading these cards. And I put the card, and I knew the prayer. The words kept on coming, you know. Adonai roi, lo etzar, binot deshit yarbitseni, almei menuchot. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. By verdant pastures he gives me repose. So and as I stopped. you're walking, I stopped, yes. I stopped and I felt a, a very warm sense. I don't know how to describe it. I remember talking to a priest about it in Rome. And he said, no, what you've done now is move from the grammar to the story, to the, the image. And I found that very helpful. You know, another thing that's happened to me, um, 
because I have many Jewish friends and because I studied in Israel and I love Israel and I know the Jewish tradition, I've been invited to, I'm invited, I've gone to many Jewish funerals of friends in Israel and also in Canada where I live. Last summer, a friend of mine's mother died. She's a television personality in France. She's Jewish. And because of a whole series of events and family members couldn't come and the burial had to be, she asked me to lead the prayers at the graveside for her mother, a Jew, a Holocaust survivor. With all Jew I said, I told the daughter, Hannah, I said, Hannah, I'm a Catholic priest. And she says, that's okay, you understand us. Mm. And I remember praying, I wore the kippah, I wore the head out of respect for them, and praying the prayers in Hebrew. And she said, you're the best rabbi priest we've ever had. But to say those prayers, and I wasn't just reading them, because there are prayers at Mass every time. When you and I, as priests, we say the blessing over the gifts, the preparation of the gifts. Blessed are you, Lord, God of all creation, through your goodness, bread and wine. Those prayers are exactly from the Jewish blessing at Pesach, the Jewish blessing at Shabbat every week. Baruch atadonai lochenu melech haolam hamotzi lechem mina aretz. Baruch atadonai lochenu melech haolam borei peri hagafen. So the, our prayer flows from Jewish prayer. If we want to pray well, and we have time to study, it's very important to take into consideration Jewish prayer. I've often found, you know, associating myself with Jesus and praying is very helpful. Another really important moment happened during my years of graduate studies in Israel. In Israel, it was like an explosion of, of seeing all of this come alive and, and the prayer books. I, I took a habit on Friday evenings, I would go to the Shabbat, the Sabbath celebrations, the Jewish Sabbath at the Hebrew Union College. Uh, it's a, a seminary, based. it's based in Cincinnati, in fact, but they have a branch in Jerusalem. And I was able to join the rabbinical students every Friday night for the first prayers of the Jewish Sabbath. I found that very, very moving, very beautiful. Another very powerful moment in prayer, because I had to learn languages, um, I was the confessor for a community of sisters in the little village of Emmaus, one of the village sites of Emmaus. They had a big nursing home for abandoned Palestinian and Arab women. And I'd sit, stay with the sisters. Once a month I went regularly for four years, spent three days. It was my little oasis. It was a little piece of paradise. And the sisters would take me up to the nursing home part, and I'd go and visit with the patients and speak to them in Arabic. But one day they said, this woman here is dying, and she's from Malula in Syria. And Malula, which has now been completely destroyed with the war, Malula was the last entire village where Aramaic was spoken. It's a little village. On, it's a gorgeous little place. And she said, would you come, her name was Mariam, would you come to Mary here and just say the prayers of the dying and bring her communion? So I got there, and I know the prayers in Aramaic, and I started to speak the Our Father in Aramaic and the Hail Mary. And she had been in a semi-coma, and she just opened her eyes with this beautiful smile. And as I said, uh, Our Father who art in heaven. And it, it hit me. I said, this is what Jesus would have said when he prayed this. Mm. So my, my experience of prayer has been a bit different. I, my prayer very much flows from the scripture. I love the rosary as a form of repetition. It's like a song that you love and you want to keep on playing it. Um, so do you pray the rosary now? I pray the rosary now. I find it extremely helpful in the car. Uh, I find it very, it really breaks up the driving, mm -hmm. but also it's a way of keeping focused. 
I learned in Germany, when I was studying in Germany, how to do the biblical rosary. They have a very special way of adding scripture at the end of each of the prayers. Blessed are you among women. Blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus, who suffered for us on the cross. Mm. And you repeat that ten times. And then you repeat that. So rather than announcing the mystery, you repeat the mystery each time. And I have about five versions of that, which I found very, very helpful. Um, another form of prayer that really excited me, we talk about the way of the cross, the prayer of the devotional way of the cross, which is one of my favorite things. I lived on the Via Dolorosa for four, four and a half years. And that is... I lived on the way of the cross street in Jerusalem. in Jerusalem. I lived, my address was the second station of the cross wow. where Pilate tried Jesus. Pilate presented Jesus to the people saying, Homo, this is the man. Behold the man. That's where I lived. But afterwards, you know, I had part of my journey brought me to uh, lead the World Youth Day in Canada. And doing that, you get to meet all kinds of people and experience all kinds of prayer things. And I discovered the mysteries of light which is a new prayer, the way of light, the Via Lucis, which is a magnificent prayer. You know, we talk about the stations of the cross, mm -hmm. but the Via Lucis is the stations of the resurrection. Mm. And it's truly magnificent because my specialty in teaching has been the passion narratives and the resurrection narratives. So all of this to say scripture has played a very big part in helping me to pray. I do formal prayer. I know prayer by memory. I pray the Psalms as a religious every day in, in the breviary and the office book. But also I'm, I'm, I love looking at the scriptures and then praying with the scriptures, seeing myself in the story, seeing myself sitting next to the Samaritan woman and experiencing that conversation, seeing myself in the Gadarene cemetery there with the Gerasenes, this man chained to the tombs, and the prayer that Jesus would have prayed over him and that he prayed to Jesus. So I don't have any trouble. I'm kind of a visual person. Well, and it seems like the, the reality is that obviously as a priest, you're, you're afforded with these wonderful luxuries of experiences that will, that will help your prayer life. And I think sometimes people, especially at Mass, will say, Father, I, I just don't get anything out of the Mass. And it seems to me like a lot of your prayer, your personal prayer, as you mentioned, contributes to your experience of the Word of God in the Mass. Can you talk a little bit about that? What times where you've really felt God during the Mass? We go to Mass not so much to get something out of it, but to witness an incredible love story that's unfolding for us on that altar of the Word and on the altar of the sacrament. The so give us the an example of when you have witnessed that. In, in real, in what helps me very much at Mass, and when I taught in the seminary and I taught young priests or students to become priests, uh, if the, the celebrant, if the presider, if the priest is not having a love affair with God and with Jesus, don't say Mass. If you don't have a heart that's really filled with love, don't bother. There's a wonderful quote by Thomas Merton. If you haven't experienced a broken heart, then don't try to celebrate Mass. You're inviting people into a love affair. And so much of it depends not on how dazzling we make it, but on the piety and reverence of the person celebrating Mass. This is one thing that Pope Francis has done remarkably well. I mean, when you see him with the crowds in St. Peter's Square and the crowds, I mean, he's a rock star. But when you see him at Mass, he's really so recollected, so profoundly moved and fixed on what he's doing and that invites people into prayer. I have to ask myself, if I'm going to Mass to get something out of it, 
what do I want out of it? Who am I to say get something? I'm going as a witness to a love story, and I'm going to be fed. And whether I'm moved emotionally, whether I have tears in my eyes or whatever, I'm going there to be fed, and the Lord is going to speak to me. Well, what would you say to somebody that maybe does not have a priest that seems to be in that love affair? And, and they, they, they go to Mass. It's, it's a, the people of God have a right to be fed by the sacrament and fed by the Word. It's a right. Pope John Paul II wrote, I think in the year 2000, this wonderful document called Dies Domini, the Day of the Lord. And it's a beautiful, it talks, it's really the charter of rights of the faithful celebrating the Eucharist. The Day of the Lord is Sunday. And when you don't have that, then I, I would tell people, the other thing that the Church teaches is it does not depend on the minister. Mm -hmm that the Lord is still present, ex opere operato, it's in the action. But it does help when the minister, the priest, is well prepared, and when he's articulate, when he's reverent, and when he's really trying to be holy and human at the same time. Well, what would be your advice to someone that is not in that ideal scenario? How can they, what, what can they do to, to, to foster or experience, at least for themselves, to really go into Mass I would tell people, listen carefully to the scripture readings. The readings are accessible to people long before they get to church. They're accessible online, they're accessible on apps, they're accessible in books and whatever. Read those readings over. And I've often told people, you know, please, the night before, the morning of, read over the gospel. If you don't have time to read the other stuff, read over the gospel and, and pray before you go to church, or even when you're there in church waiting for Mass to begin. Lord, I want you to help me understand what this is about. You spoke about the lost sheep in today's gospel. I am that sheep. Come and reach me. Come and touch me. If you have special needs to pray for people, read over that gospel. Read over the psalm, a line in the psalms. Let that keep on repeating that. And, and hopefully the priest's homily will build upon that. But sometimes it doesn't. So I think to expect to get something every time, the question should be, what am I bringing to this celebration? Well, maybe a better way of saying it is not to get something, but you did say that the people have a right to be fed. Right. Yeah, so may maybe that's a better thing. Sometimes people say, I'm not being fed. Yeah. The, 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 the feeding takes place, whether we like it or not, the feeding is there. But it would be nice to be fed with a certain decorum and a certain spirit and a certain uh, atmosphere. It's so important. You know, another way that we pray is through music, too, mm -hmm. in the liturgy. That's why there's a high premium. You know, when I when I look at the years I was pastor, I was in a parish for two years, deacon and priest, and I was pastor, chaplain of the university church for six years. And for me, there's a couple givens that are necessary to create the right environment for prayer. Very practical things. Make sure there's good sound system in church. Put a high premium on music ministry. Proper preparation of the lectors and the readers. And make sure the lighting is good. Oh, you, got, you know, all of those things... What I'm doing with the liturgy when I preside at Mass, it's the most sacred act I could be about. It's bringing God down to earth, and God deserves a proper setting, and as well as preparing the environment and preparing the, the, the community to receive this wonderful gift. Uh, that's how I've dealt with the liturgy. Piety and devotion, for example, there's the prayer of the adoration of the Blessed Sacrament which is open to much misunderstanding or misinterpretation today. But what it profoundly realizes or, or reveals to us is that the presence of God is not just limited to the Eucharistic celebration, but it's this lingering presence that invites us to be with Jesus. 
and you know, thank God that adoration has come back with a vengeance, I think, because we tried to throw it out after Vatican II in many places. When I went through theology in, in graduate school, we never once had adoration of the Blessed Sacrament. In fact, I don't think they had monstrances anymore. There was kind of passe or dépassé or whatever. And to see it come back now, much through the reverence of John Paul II, World Youth Days, Pope Benedict and Pope Francis, it is a very beautiful way of teaching people to be with Jesus and Jesus to be with them. When I was chaplain of the University of Toronto, I'll never forget, I took a great risk and I decided to institute adoration of the Blessed Sacrament every Friday. We had Mass every day, but every Friday, after the daily Mass at 12.30 until 5 o'clock, we exposed the Blessed Sacrament. This is a big, high-powered university, 60,000 students, in the middle of downtown Toronto. I was criticized for People said, why are you bringing back that old thing? I said, no, no, this is a time for people to be with Jesus. And we, we assign volunteers to always be in the church. And I'll never forget one day, a graduate student from Asia came in my office. She was a medical student. And she sat down and she said, I wanted to thank you for bringing back the monstrance and, the, and Jesus. I said, well, thank you very much. I said, what's so special about it? She said, Father, we're living today in a world of absence. Absent friends, absent fathers, absent mothers, people not there. She says, at least this presence won't let us down. She said it very simply and beautifully. A graduate medical student at the University of Toronto from Southeast Asia. And I remember thinking to myself, that's exactly it. It's in the world of absence or false forms of presence, we're instituting Jesus again. But I made sure that with adoration, it was always accompanied properly with scripture, with music, with proper prayers, uh, good moments of silence. And I found using Teze music there to be very helpful. So for, there are some people that haven't experienced adoration. What is that? Adoration is we take the host that's consecrated at Mass. It's put in this lovely receptacle we call a monstrance. Some people call it a big clock. And it's there in the altar. And it's exposed for quiet prayer. We gaze upon Jesus. We look upon Jesus. And sometimes it's pure silence. I find it very helpful. It's a centering prayer, a coming to peace, and you know, repeating different prayers. I have a whole series of things I repeat when I pray, mostly from the scriptures, mostly Psalms. One of my favorite ones is from the Emmaus story, Stay with us, Lord. Stay with us, Lord. Mane nobiscum. Stay with us in Latin. Resta con noi, Signore. Bleib bei uns in German. Quédate con nosotros in uh, Spanish, because I've had to work in those different languages. And, and I look at Jesus in this. And the, but not only I look at Jesus, he's looking at me. St. John Vianney said that. Yeah. Yeah. Pope Francis has said it beautifully, that he goes and prays all the time in the chapel at Santa Marta in the evenings, and sometimes before the Blessed Sacrament. And he says, and sometimes I fall asleep. But even when I fall asleep, he's looking upon me, he's gazing upon me. So it's prayer, essentially, is this long, loving look at the real. My loving look at the real, and God's loving look at the real me. And somehow it's in that case, you know, gazing upon somebody and looking at someone, you also, you're calling them out, and you're bringing them to life. And that's how I view prayer. Can you describe for us a moment in adoration where you really felt that presence? No, I feel it all the time in adoration. It's not, I'm not carried away by some high emotion ever. Uh, sometimes I wish I was, but it's, I feel at home. I feel very comfortable. In the evenings, oftentimes, when I lived in Jerusalem, 
I went down to the basilica. I lived in the top floor, the roof of the convent. I went down to the basilica that commemorates the place where Jesus was handed over by Pontius Pilate. And I'd sit long, long time before the, the tabernacle. It was underneath this big arch from Hadrian's period, the Roman period. And I felt the presence. I felt the presence of Jesus in the Holy Land very, very clearly. That was, there were the moments of the, probably the most intimate prayer I've had in my life. Like where, because, when? All over. Galilee, at the place of the multiplication, the Mount of the Beatitudes. I felt, you know, people say, was this really there when Jesus was here? Was this the place? And I said, you're missing the whole point. This is the same land that he walked, and the same sky that hovered over him is hovering over us. And I've, when people have the opportunity to go to the Holy Land, I encourage them. It really is a marvelous experience. You've had it and I've had it. Yeah, having been there, I, I, now I say everyone should have that opportunity. It really is. It, it gave me a whole new way. I will never pray the scriptures in the same way. I'll never pray. My mother had a beautiful line. My mother now whose memory is failing and everything. My mom went to daily mass, a very prayerful woman. She prayed the divine office. She's a third order member of my congregation. Oftentimes when I went home, I would see her praying there in the corner in the chair with the office book. When she came to see me in the Holy Land, she came twice. The first time she came, she was so moved by it. It was a pilgrimage, and she was caught up with this. And when she went back home, she wrote me a letter, and she said, it's sort of like virtual reality mm -hmm. at Mass. Mm -hmm. And I said, what do you mean? I wrote back, I said, what do you mean by this? And she said, when I listen to the readings now, I can't shut the tape off. Now, when she came back the second time, I had her explain it. I said, what do you experience? She said, I listened to the... She said, now I close my eyes. I'm not sleeping. I close my eyes, and I see him moving on the Mount of the Beatitudes. Mm. I can feel the prophet. I can feel Mary. I can feel... She said, and I can't shut the tape off. And I said, what a wonderful way wow. for somebody who didn't study theology. Uh, you know, when, when she goes to God... I know what I'm going to say about her. I can't shut the tape off. Talk about pray always. Oh yeah, it's right? it, it's a beautiful, beautiful. Mm. And in fact, I was with her the other day in the nursing home. She suffered a terrible accident that triggered off dementia, and um, she can't forget. She can't remember what she ate for breakfast. But the minute I take her down to the chapel, it all comes out. The prayers. I celebrate mass in the nursing home where she's there, and and she remembers all the prayers. And not only in English, she remembers them in Italian, but she can't remember what she had for breakfast in the morning. And, you know, praying is very important. I tell people, learn that vocabulary now, because mm -hmm. in the end, when everything is stripped from us, That's, it's important that, that those words remain. We yeah. saw that with Pope John Paul II at the end of his life. Yeah. You'd mentioned icons earlier. Tell me about your first introduction to icons. Who introduced you to icons? I stumbled upon the church of St. Gervais in Paris, I was an undergraduate student studying in France for three summers and working in France, living in Paris. And I remember one day, it was probably 1978, I walked to this church, Saint-Gervais Church, right behind the city hall. Walked into it, it was around evening, Vespers time, and I was blown away by what I saw. First of all, it was a church that had fallen pretty much into ruin. I later learned that, you know, that was given to this community called the Fraternity of Jerusalem. And I saw all these monks, women and men, in white robes, sitting on the floor in the front. And there were all of these icons with candles in front of them. I said, these are not the normal pictures. What are these things? So I owe it to that community to teach me about icons. And then, living in Jerusalem, I studied iconography. 
I, I was celebrating Mass every Saturday at the Benedictine Abbey on the Mount of Olives, where the chief iconographer lives in the Middle East, Sister Marie Paul. And I realized that these are not paintings, they're not photographs. Icons are windows into the holy. They invite you into the story. So I, I became a lover of icons. So I want to talk about that for a little bit because when we talk about devotionals or we talk about sacramentals, I think most Catholics are very much aware of statues and paintings. Right. We, we all have paintings of Jesus or images yeah. that, that impact us. I think something that I was not aware of and, and love now, and I know you do, are icons. Tell people what icons are. And you mentioned icons, it's, a, it's image, it's a window, it's an invitation to enter this scene, to come into this story. Not just to look at something, but it's to enter into it. When you realize the process undertaken by the iconographer, we don't say he or she painted it, but she wrote the icon. It's a form of writing that takes place. The wood is blessed. The wood is prepared. As the coats of paint go on this, on this piece of wood, prayers accompany it. Every icon, an authentic icon, is prayed over. It's the fruit of prayer. And there's a certain classic form of iconography. You just don't set up something and call it an icon. Uh, there's classic iconography. There's specific words that are on it. There's specific ways that Jesus is presented or Mary is presented. They are stunning invitations and windows into the holy. So tell me about that first time that you entered into prayer through an icon. It was in Paris in the summers, 78 and 79. And then I remember when I acquired or received my first icon, it was one of my, con one of my confreres, it was the icon of the Anastasis, the resurrection of Jesus descending into hell and pulling up Adam and Eve from hell, you know, when he descended yeah. among the dead. And since then, there are many icons. My, I had an icon made, written, based on my thesis. My thesis was on the disciples of Emmaus. Well, we'll talk about that next, I'd like to, but first, that icon. What did what happened in you when you when you gazed upon that? It was unlike looking at a picture, or um, a reproduction of something. I love art, and there's some beautiful paintings, but to look at an icon, it's almost like a sacramental. It's it's a holy object. I don't treat this as a normal picture, a normal painting. I treat this as an inv a special invitation, a holy invitation to enter the scene. And one of the things I do, it just happens to me automatically, is to look at that. It conjures up immediately the story, the atmosphere. Um, I look all around the picture. Icons have certain code things, the color red, the color blue, the color green, uh, the way that things are depicted. You just don't, I know a little bit about iconography, so that's really helped. And when I look at icons, I can pray better. I found it very helpful. But when you looked at that icon and prayed with the icon of the resurrection and Christ reaching into, into hell, what was that doing in you? That story, you know, this, the quiet, the silence of Holy Saturday. Where was Jesus? He went down and he extended this new life to all of those who had come before him. And it's not just the fires of hell, of evil, the red devil. He went, entered the netherworld, the place of nothingness, and he brought up Adam and Eve and said, bring the rest with you. You will all rise with me. And it, icons, of course, come from the East. And so they're wonderful invitations, ecumenical invitations. 
to extend what came before and to extend to what comes after. Uh, their windows, their opportunities, their invitations, their sacred holy moments. Um, it's a form of scripture. To look at an icon is a form of scripture. When you think of the great medieval cathedrals, and all of the time, when people couldn't read, it was art icons that really brought them to life. And it seems like in some way you experienced Christ with, with you and, and all of us bringing us into heaven right here on earth. Is that fair to say? Icons are a window into heaven. Mm -hmm. To have holy pictures, they're windows into heaven. You know, I, I used, when I was chaplain of the university, I put in 12 stained glass windows of the new saints and blesseds. One of the nicest things a graduate student said to me, he said, when we had the dedication of the windows in 1999, he said, that day, that particular day was All Saints Day. He said, it was sort of like, I remember his language, it was sort of like you climbed up and ripped open a patch and we, mm. we looked into heaven. You mm. ripped open the clouds. We got to look on the other side. That's what beautiful art and icons and windows and pictures do. It's to lead them beyond and not to stop with what we see. It's an invitation to go beyond. Yeah, and I think that's a beautiful, uh, I think that's what we all long for in prayer is to experience something of heaven right here on earth. That's right. You've had, obviously, tremendous and wonderful experiences of prayer, and it's probably evolved over the years. As you look at your, your, your prayer life right now, what is that like, your daily prayer? What, what do you do? How do you pray? Of course, the, the structure, there's a certain framework, and it's the liturgy of the hours, the psalms, morning prayer, evening prayer, night prayer. Throughout the day, there's all kinds of uh, exclamations at times. You know, I, I feel that they're tired of me up there in heaven listening. I need this. Please help me. I can't do this. Be with me. You know, I've had to do some very significant or big projects and some you know, difficult jobs over the past few years. And I can say, in all honesty, I've never done something without praying beforehand. Every time I have to go on live television, which is often dealing with very contentious and difficult issues. I always go with great trepidation, and I pray, Lord, give me your words. Holy Spirit, come and give me your words. And I insist with my staff at the television network, they're often called upon, do nothing unless you pray first. Mm -hmm. And I really believe, we have to prepare, we have to have the script and everything else, but the Lord will provide the words if we ask him. And the Lord has been very faithful. I, the Lord has not let me down. Doesn't mean there haven't been horrifying moments but the Lord has not let me down. And when I have to give big talks or whatever as part of my job, lectures, I say, okay, Lord, I've done the research, I've done the work, now speak through me. And the Lord does that. I feel the Lord doing I'm confident that the Lord does that. When we talk to people about um, how to pray, when to pray, where to pray, there, there's an anecdote I like to use, which is called the five piece of prayer. And I'm going to actually ask you to illustrate this for us. But the five P's of prayer are prepare, that, that when we go to pray, we in some way kind of prepare to get ready for it, that we place, that we have a place to go to and pray, that there's some kind of posture. So the church traditionally has four postures of standing, sitting, kneeling, or prostrating, that there is a moment of presence where we, we, we enter into the presence of God. And finally, we go with a passage. Tell me about that. Walk me through that with you. When you prepare to pray, how do you do that? 
where I live, I have a little chapel in my house, and so that's very helpful. But I also pray at night, sometimes falling asleep in bed, or pray at my desk. Um, ideally, the most ideal posture position for me to pray or place would be in some kind of a church setting or before a holy picture, a holy image. I find that very important. A candle. I find a candle, you know, a very simple candle. Light the candle, kind of changes the mood. The Lord is present. This is the light, okay? Mm-hmm. Holy images, holy places, holy pictures, they're important in conducive environments. I find sometimes when I'm out in nature near the water, I love being near the water, the lake, the sea, or when I'm in the mountains, I can pray very well. I love that, you know. Uh, the mountains, they're psalms. I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where shall come my help? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. And near the water, I find those. You know, Israel is a perfect example. It's the best real estate in the world for prayer, the best backdrops. Um, the place, preparation is I'm going to pray. Mm-hmm. I'm, not, I'm going to turn off my iPhone. I'm going to move from the iPad, That's although nowadays you can pray on it. You use the iPad to pray. How many times do I go to functions where everybody's praying from an iPad? But you can turn but off. But then you turn it off. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Followed by that, the place, you know, the setting is very important. Posture, I'm, I'm very comfortable with kneeling. Some people aren't. But I find the whole kneeling position or the orante position with one's arms open and praying, looking up to heaven, that's important. Which I think is beautiful because as, as a child you knelt before your bed. That's right. And now it sounds like you have a chapel. Yes. Is there a kneeler in there? I have a kneeler in there. Yeah, there's a okay. pradio in the chapel. I have that. Or kneeling next to my bed is just as fine, too. Uh, posture, of course, depends on what one is comfortable with. I'm not good at prostrate on the floor. Other people are. I think we always have to be aware, too, of not causing a disturbance or putting on a show. Mm-hmm. You know, Jesus is when you pray, go to your room and pray in quiet. You don't stand in the corner with your phylacteries or put on a big performance. The presence that comes, it's my presence to the Lord. Am I being truly present to him? He's always present to me. So this business of the Lord not hearing or whatever, it's the quality of my presence. How many distractions? And sometimes I bring all my distractions to the Lord and say, take these away from me. Take these temptations away from me. Let me I say, let me feel your presence. Mm. Come deep within me. Uh, and it, it's not necessarily with much emotion, but it's that honesty of a discussion. It's looking at the Lord in reality and the Lord looking at us in our reality. So when you have that... Try to articulate for, for, for us what that is, what, what, what that presence is like for you. How do you know when, when you're present and, and when you're... I just know. It's hard to say. I know. I know, obviously, I'm in the, the praying before the Blessed Sacrament or praying before a holy image. I know the Lord's present. I've never felt the Lord not present with me. Mm-hmm. Never. Mm-hmm. Uh, even in the most abysmal moments, in the dark moments, in tense moments, in difficult moments... I know that the Lord is there. I know you are with me. With your rod and your staff, you give me courage. And then finally, passage. What, what do you pray with when you go to pray? The scripture passages. It depends on what the circumstances are. A lot of, I, I pray every day the readings of the day. It's just, I, I read over the night before the scriptural readings for Mass the following day. No matter what, I read them over. And then for particular needs and moments of sadness, there are specific readings moments of need and want there are readings and there's plenty of things you, you, there's nothing everything is there and we need to look at we need to be aware of the different things you know there's guides there's lists 
when you have a moment of need, when someone is sick, when someone is suffering, when you're in sin, you need forgiveness. All of those things are present. What would be, we'll, we'll end with this, what would be your advice? So as a priest, I think we are blessed with, with opportunities tremendously to grow in prayer and to experience prayer. What would be your advice to someone who doesn't have these experiences, say they're a layperson and, and wants to grow in prayer, what, what would you... Uh, what, would, what encouragement and, would you give Go them? and ask somebody who prays to help you. Mm. The most beautiful thing that somebody can ask mm. me as a priest, and it's happened many times, Father, would you teach me how to pray? Teach me how to pray. That's a wonderful image, and that you said in the beginning. Find someone. Find someone who prays. It doesn't have to be a priest or some kind of a you know spiritual guru. Go and ask someone who oh, prays. Teach great. me how to pray. You know, it's a beautiful thing in John chapter 11, excuse me, Luke chapter 11, where the Our Father is taught. The disciples go to Jesus and they say, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples how to pray. Wonderful. That reveals loads about the disciples, about Jesus, but especially about John the Baptist. Yeah. And I love that. When I teach the Our Father, there's the Matthean Our Father that we know from Matthew's Gospel that's incorporated in our prayer. But then the different Our Father, there's some differences with Luke's Our Father. But I spend a long time teaching about the opening words. Teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. That's wonderful. John must have left a deep and lasting impressions. And the other thing is, that chapter begins, Jesus was in prayer, and only when he finished did they go over to him. Mm. In other words, his praying caused the need and the desire to spring up from the apostles. And when we pray, that is the best invitation to others mm to pray. When I go down in the Vatican crypt and pray at the tombs of the popes, or I go and pray before John the 23rd, or Paul the 6th, or John Paul the 2nd, I'm always amazed at the numbers of people that are praying there, especially at John the 23rd. You have street people and bag ladies and bishops and cardinals and people all well dressed up and everything. And for me, watching those people pray gives me this desire to pray. People who pray are the invitation to others to pray. Well, that that's wonderful, and I, I want to end with that. Right now, my heart is on fire. I, I feel like I've been with someone who has that, that, that prayer of experience. So I would encourage you, if you're listening to this and you want to grow in prayer, I think Father Tom's advice is so so simple and so wonderful. Look for that person. Find someone that you see that has that depth of prayer life and ask them. Teach me how to pray, just as John taught his disciples. So thank you, Father Tom, for your time. Thank and you. Uh, we look forward to, to more from you. Thank you.